Would you bow your head in prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we quiet our hearts before you right now, and we make a commitment in our souls to submit and to surrender to the authority of Christ's word. Lord, this word is not authoritative because of the servant that brings it today, but only because it was delivered by your sovereign hand. And we are thankful that you are pleased to use it through the proclamation of the preaching of the gospel even this morning. But we are utterly dependent both in the hearing and the delivery of your word today on the precious Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us into all truth. I pray that that would happen for us today and the fruit of this meeting would be believers more thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that you would, through the proclamation of truth, continue to draw your elect, Heavenly Father, from the four corners of this earth to populate glory with voices praising, worthy is the Lamb. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Last week we covered the end of discourse number four, and now there's a shift in the narrative as Jesus continues on his ministry journey from his area, the area that he frequented, the more remote areas, the less prestigious areas, where the least of these, as it were, would hang out. And now he is beginning his journey from that area in Galilee to Calvary, to to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. If you would stand with me this morning, let us read together Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Stand with me if you're able, and follow along as I read. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh? What therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
The title of this morning's message is One Man, One Woman Under God. One Man and One Woman Under God. That is the summary definition and terms in Christ's own declarative word recalling the created order for marriage that we see clearly, emphatically in the Gospel of Matthew. We've already heard this in summary form in Matthew chapter 5. Moving back a few pages, in the Gospel record you hold before you in your Bible, it was said in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 related to the issue of divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ declares, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we have the same theme. The occasion is slightly different. It's upon the question, an antagonistic question again from the Pharisees. But we have the same theme, and we have the same dictated, and we have the same truth dictated by the same authority. Christ has used this formula in Matthew chapter five. You have heard it said, or it was also said, but I say to you, to distinguish himself from tradition of men, from the rabbis who spoke and echoed the word of God, but did not have the authority or power to declare it, such as Christ had. In a similar fashion, he repeats. In his own preface, which indicates his power to establish law as the second person of the Trinity, in Matthew 19, 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan expositor and preacher, some of you may study with his devotional commentary. I recommend it highly if you don't. Matthew Henry is quoted... As saying the following, let me first mention that this man died 200 plus years ago. Matthew Henry died in 1714. But these words I'm about to quote to you could have been written yesterday. And without editing, it's hard to imagine them being more relevant today, 200 years after they were uttered, than the moment he wrote them or the moment Jesus declared them in Matthew 19 or the words which inspire this commentary. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, If we consider what mishaps, I'm sorry, what mischiefs to families and states, what confusions and disorders would follow upon arbitrary divorces, we shall see how much this law of Christ is for our own benefit and what a friend Christianity is to our secular interests. Let me read that to you again, this insightful quote from this man 200 years ago. If we consider what mischiefs to families and states, what confusions and disorders would follow upon arbitrary divorces, we shall see how much this law of Christ is for our own benefit. What a friend Christianity is to our secular interests. What is this commentator saying of this passage? Well, he is saying that if we lose Christ's terms of divorce in the value and the esteem of what marriage is and the definition that we hold and our faithfulness to it, what will fall apart? According to the Word of God, and in summary, Matthew Henry, he says, families will be the casualty. States, that is, society, will be in disarray. 
confusion, disorder of every sort, the nation will begin to fall apart around us. When arbitrary terms of marriage become the norm in the context of our culture, we begin to see by contrast how valuable is the law of Christ. Nothing holds together well when the family falls apart. What is the glue, therefore, that keeps it together? It is the declared Word of God, honored as such and obeyed by the Spirit-enabled believer and His covenant commitment and faithfulness to His spouse, to her spouse. And certainly the world will then see, by this salt and light, what a friend Christianity is, Christian marriage is, to everyone, to the interests of society. When Matthew Henry wrote these words, mind you, himself a Puritan in the 18th century, think about it, there were no bakeries closing down in the 18th century for refusing to cater a so-called homosexual wedding ceremony. When he wrote that quote, there was no suffocating welfare state, as far as I know, subsidizing a culture of pathological covenant-breaking. There were no arrests on western streets like England and Scotland for merely quoting the Bible, the Old Testament, and the terms of holiness and the holiness code of the law. There was no American Civil Liberties Union campaign to purge courthouses and public squares of ancient artifacts, memorializing transcendent ethics, eternal law of God, in the form of, say, crosses or Ten Commandment monuments. When Matthew Henry wrote these words, there were no conferences under quasi-Christian titles or profession promoting so-called inclusion of sexual minorities who were once disenfranchised by a bigoted church who called them things like sinners. And when Matthew Henry wrote these words, there was no Supreme Court presuming the authority to define marriage by the arbitrary whim of a God-mocking state. Yet, brothers and sisters, these words that we're studying this morning, morning providentially in our series come just days, just days before in our cultural context, our Supreme Court of this nation will begin deliberating what is marriage and is there such a thing as a constitutional right homosexual marriage, the so-called new way or definition of thinking about these relationships. Why would they even convene? The truth is settled in stone. The fact that they presumptuously meet to discuss these things, given the nature of arbitrary legislation that has passed under the pens of legislators lately, We can only surmise that we are on the precipice of cultural collapse, demise, and another step toward a suicidal end if we continue down this road. So in light of our modern day, these words of Matthew Henry strike right to the core. So what was the secret of his insight? What gave him such a prophetic clarity ringing 200 200 years ago, two centuries ago, from a Puritan, no less? Well, the answer is easy when we consider that question in light of Matthew 19. Matthew Henry's thinking was not shaped by 
his cultural surroundings. It was shaped by passages of Scripture like Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. His thinking was shaped by the timelessly relevant, invariable, immutable, inevitable Word of God. Yesterday, we took a trip, Jack and me, to go see a concert in Bemidji. And it struck me how many distinctions that you make, how many discriminating judgment calls you make in the course of driving your car. A simple task, we think, we do it without even really considering it. It's a matter of course and habit. But think about it. When you drive down the road, there's a difference between the asphalt and the ditch. There's the forest, and then there's the clear way. There's a yellow line, and depending on whether it's solid or dotted, you have permission, according to people who have determined whether it's safe or not, to pass the car in front of you, provided you are mindful of the opposing traffic. Consider that other drivers must be safe and follow the rules before you get from point A to point B. Not only that, you have to measure the distance. We do so by road signs and mile markers, perhaps a map or Siri to help us along. Perhaps the coordinates are typed into our electronic device. And then there's a return trip. It might be at night. We should switch on our lights. We dim them down from high beams so as not to blind the driver approaching. And all of these decisions are a carefully prescribed plan to go safely from point A to point B. It's easy for us to understand in those simple terms, is it not? If you take off... You figure, oh, the closest way between point A and point B is a straight line. You drive right through a swamp and into a forest. How far will that get you? Maybe 100 yards into the Minnesota brush. Not far at all. How is it that we can so easily understand and follow rules, mutually agreed upon in society when we are driving a car, but then throw caution to the wind, have no rules and guideposts, No straight and narrow way, no pathway or road prescribed when it comes to something far more potentially dangerous and far more important like family. What is a family? How does one start? What is the pathway of safety? When am I qualified to start on that journey? How do you raise children? What does the instruction look like? How should they be educated, raised up in the faith? What are the milestones of maturity? How will I know when I've arrived? When should they leave my nest? When should I step in? When should I hold off? When should I make their decisions for them? When should they make their own? Who should I marry? Who would be an eligible candidate for that? Under what terms? What about my maturity? All these things in our society today are entirely up for grabs. And it is as dangerous spiritually and for society as taking your car on a joyride through a Minnesota forest and ending up over a cliff and sinking it in a mine pit. That is the equivalent of denying the law of God, the guideposts and the straight and narrow path for His prescription from point A to point B in society. We are in very dire straits. What can we do if we find ourselves here? We can open up the law of God, His prescription. Turn to Matthew 19, read 
and take seriously these words. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Those are words of safety. Those are words of clarity, of direction, of foundation, of security, and of direction for the future. A heading for a few brief points this morning. Necessary distinctions. Distinctions necessary to understand marriage. We must understand the crowds from the critics, the difference between the approach to Christ briefly in the context of our passage. Secondly, let us note the context of Scripture versus the context of culture. Thirdly, the commands of Scripture versus concessions. And finally, cynicism versus commitment. There is a distinction that is necessary, I feel, in the context of these words that we can note to understand, what, to understand marriage. And it comes in the form of context when we read 19, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this. Now when Jesus had finished these saints, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Read one more verse. Notice the contrast in the way that the crowds approached Christ and the approach again of the Pharisees in this, te- in this text. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? When we come to Christ, when we consider an issue as serious as family, as marriage, do we come as the crowds did? Humbly submitting to Christ's authority for salvation, for healing. Putting themselves in His hands, listening and receiving His words and His works. Or do we approach Christ like the Pharisees to test Him? Ask yourself this question. Are you more like a follower or are you more like a Pharisee? Do you submit to Christ Do you understand your brokenness and that your life is utterly broken without Him? And do you approach Him for salvation, first of your soul, and secondly, direction for all of life, everything related to it? Do you beseech Him for healing as He is on His road even to Calvary? Matthew Henry has another quote. This quote has to do with the gospel, the words of Christ, the law of Moses. He says, the law of Moses considered the hardness of men's hearts, but the gospel of Christ cures it, and His grace takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. By the law was the knowledge of sin, but by the gospel was the conquest of it. And here was a man who is God in flesh, who could teach you the law, and he could teach you grace, who in himself and his own suffering would set you free from the curse of the law and would give both the clarity and the means, both the standard and the obedience to follow the way God had originally designed man to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever, to leave His parents and cleave in one flesh union in a godly way according to the prescription of the created order with His spouse, until death do them part. When we come to Christ, we must 
consider our heart in this action. We don't go to the Bible as its judge, but we go there if we are correct in our approach as one who is submitted to it. Notice that for the Pharisees, marriage was not sacred to them. Do you think these men, you can discern between the lines their motive, do you think they honestly cared about marriage? Of course not. They were, as was their habit, looking for a way to trip up Christ in His own words. Thus, marriage was not sacred to the Pharisees. Instead, it was exploited as an opportunity to besmirch Christ, to try to find chink in His armor, to disparage and to deny His law, to set themselves up as authority and not submit to His. Does that mentality and attitude sound familiar? Today we hear sanctimonious platitudes like anti-discrimination that are supposed to convince us that we are supposed to change everything, including the definition of marriage, so that people who want to define it any way they so choose in their arbitrary lawlessness can find a home and acceptance and refuge under every tent of society, even within the Christian church. Is marriage sacred for these? These voices lobbying government, culture, and the church to change their tune for the cultural whim of our day away from the sacred words of Scripture? No, marriage is not sacred to these voices. Instead, it is exploited. Exploited as an opportunity to blaspheme Jesus Christ. A follower and a Pharisee makes all the difference in the world. There are crowds who are dependent on Christ, or people, that is to say, represented by crowds who came to Him humbly, and then there are the proud of heart represented in this text by the Pharisees. Do we come to the Lord as critics? Which are we today? Let us make that necessary distinction in our own hearts so that we do not, in our pride, put on the blinders of what is common today and leave the law and the Word of God, and the purity and holiness and distinctiveness, and God forbid the truth of the gospel itself in the dust behind our progressivism, our so-called progressivism. Number two, another distinction necessary to understand marriage we've considered in the approach to Christ as a follower or a Pharisee. Secondly, consider the context of Scripture versus the context of culture. First of all, some historical background. When the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The scholars tell us that there were two schools of thought that were debating during that day. One was the school of Hillel, I believe. And this rabbi had quite a following, and he advocated for divorce for basically any reason. An ostensible justification for this was from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And in the context there, there was an allowance for divorce. And the Hillel school broadly interpreted that to basically be no-fault divorce, much like we have today. For any little trivial reason, change of heart, change of mind, burning my toast in the morning, the husband was free to divorce his wife. There was another school of thought, thought more conservative, the Shammai school, We're told this less popular position restricted the terms of divorce more strictly to infidelity. But the key here in this understanding of the cultural landscape is that this was an entrapment attempt 
You see, if Jesus agreed with one school or the other, it would place him at odds with the serious contingency of the people. He was bound to make someone mad, they figured, depending how he answered the question. And that was their point. They wanted to destroy Jesus' credibility. So, this was the cultural context, and these were the motives that drove them. And also, it was this cultural controversy that drove the debate of the day. And it is amazing to see how Jesus answered this question. I'm sure there were jaws dropped and looks of shock and fury that spread across the faces of the religious elite when he transcended the debate altogether by declaring himself an authority over the Hillel school, over the Shammai school, and reiterating God the Father's original dictates from the beginning of creation itself. Jesus Christ makes quite clear that the context of Scripture, God's declared word, always trumps the context of culture. The petty disputes and weak argumentation that cause people to be led astray into deception. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 50. While you're turning there, let us explore something that was fully available to the religious leaders at that time, namely the scroll of Isaiah. They could have opened it and they could have read some context on marriage and divorce. And they would have received, if the Spirit had used these words to illuminate their heart, Upon a sincere question asked, they would have received some clarity on their question indeed. And here marriage and divorce are used as an illustration to show Christ, God's faithfulness to His bride, pictured in His people, Israel, at the time. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you are sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. So here we see the context of God's sovereignty and the illustration of marriage. How are we to understand these words? Well, we go back to the law, the original text in question, which I mentioned, Deuteronomy 24, and we see a reference we see the original scriptures that Christ, or that was referenced by God in this verse in Isaiah 50. And this was the instruction, the concession, and allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and departs out of his, she departs out of his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife." And this is what's important to the Isaiah 50 text. You see, the Lord says to Israel, 
Where is your certificate of divorce? Oh, you do not have one? That's correct. I am a redeemer. You see, the picture here is if Israel had been issued a certificate of divorce by God, that is, cut off from relationship with God, such that divorce illustrates, then the opportunity for redemption was not appropriate according to the law of Moses. So basically, the word is, I have not divorced you. I have chastened you, but I have done so in love, and my plan is to redeem. Why, husbands, ought you stay with your wife? Why, wives, ought you stay faithful to your husband, not divorce him? Because, the Word of God says, God has not divorced you. Though your crimes against Him were certainly, technically worthy of divorce, according to Deuteronomy 24, He has not broken His covenant, but He has extended mercy and grace to you. Keep that in mind as you consider your duty to your spouse. So we see in the books of the Old Testament that marriage was not just a contract on paper for negotiations among high-paid lawyers in a court context that was merely a civil reality. No, it was a theological reality all along. It was a God-prescribed picture of His relationship with us. And this only becomes clearer in the New Testament, especially when Paul tells us that that mystery of marriage reveals Christ's relationship with His church. But there was evidence of that mystery long before in Isaiah 50, where marriage provided the illustration for God the Father's, Yahweh's relationship to His people, Israel, His covenant people. Thus, it has always been a theological reality, marriage. That's why it's not up for debate. It's not up for adjustments, not up for change, not up for innovation, not up for reinvention, and it's not up for divorce because ultimately it is something that is grounded in God, not grounded in men. Consider finally the context of Scripture versus the context of culture where this instruction, by no accident in God's sovereignty, appears in Matthew's Gospel. Yes, it follows last week's sermon, which was a message on what the gospel demands of us by way of forgiveness. Remember the parable, verse 23? Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, remember that $12 billion this man owed? Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all uh, that he had until payment be made. Servant begged for mercy. It was granted, but then he promptly left the context of that forgiveness and would not forgive a $20,000 debt compared to $12 billion. And the message of that parable is, if you have been forgiven so much, what is your obligation to your spouse who, yes, has wronged you here or there, but you have certainly done the same? What is your obligation Spouses have the same obligation as brothers do in the context of that parable. It is forgiveness that is demonstrated when stress, when sin even, when trials present the opportunity of separation and stress in any relationship, but especially marriage. 
Thus, consider the context of Scripture before and prior to and sovereignly over the context of culture and also the context of your own trial. Thirdly, this morning, distinctions necessary to understand marriage, how we approach the Word of God, either as Pharisees or as followers. Secondly, we consider the context of the Scriptures, both old and new, both immediate and broad, versus the context of culture or our own circumstances. Thirdly, a necessary distinction to understand Christ's words on marriage, command versus concession. Command versus concession. Again, 19.3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And asking, is it lawful, implied there is, or is there a command that allows for this? Or is it something stated positively so? He answered, Christ answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses give a command, uh, give a certificate of divorce, and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning... It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. First, there is a weight. There is an imperative weight, a commandment weight, a call to accountability and obedience that is distinct here on the one side versus the other. And it's the difference of something that is a positive command versus a concession or an allowance. But first of all, let's note where Jesus places the authority on this. Jesus says, first of all, have you not read in referring authoritatively to the created order? Verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And later he says in verse 6, halfway through there, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let me draw your attention to these two phrases. Have you not read what therefore God? Have you not read what therefore God? In this context, we have Jesus' view of Scripture. Jesus calls us to read the Scriptures and to hear the voice of God. Have you not read? If you have, then you know God has spoken. Recently, I listened to a great lecture. I commend to you, if you can find it online, perhaps we'll link it under excerpts on the, uh, on the website this week. Albert Moeller was speaking at the Shepherds Conference. I believe the theme was the inerrancy of Scripture, and the theme of his address was um, a correct hermeneutic, which means a study of the Bible. And he was advocating, and listen to this, write it down if it's not on your notes that I printed for you. Uh, he was advocating a hermeneutic of submission, not suspicion. Submission, not suspicion. I've mentioned to you before that it has occurred to me of late that if the Bible is the Word of God, we must submit to it as a prerequisite for understanding. All this to say, according to Jesus, 
and preachers like Al Mohler and hopefully myself this morning, all we're trying to do is underscore that fact. According to Jesus, the Bible is not something to scrutinize like you are a higher critic over it. You're its judge, it's your subject, it's your cadaver you're dissecting. It's your piece of literature you're going over and comparing. You are not the judge. Instead, you are judged by the Word of God. And in the Bible, and in correct preaching, you are called to a hermeneutic or a biblical understanding of submission, not suspicion. You see, the Pharisees suspected Jesus. We know what the law says. We have memorized the Torah. We are the authority on these kinds of issues. We are suspicious of this common teacher from Galilee. See, they employed a hermeneutic of suspicion. Let's consider his words by our higher, self-contained authority. And who did Jesus have the strongest words for in all his ministry? It was for those who presumed that position. You whitewashed tombs! You sons of the devil! You brood of serpents, you make void the word of God by your traditions. Submit to the word of God. Have you not read? Jesus totally turns the authoritative tables on these men. They were presuming with their phylacteries broad, as the Bible says, their proper attire, and their careful external legalistic obedience adding to the law, they were presuming to be the authorities, the gods walking on earth, the demigods that ought to be beseeched to know what is right. Oh, tell me, Pharisee, what should I do? And he turns the tables and says, have you not read? Of course he knew they read. They read more than anyone else. But what was the difference? They did not read to submit. They read as suspicious skeptics, as ones who presumed themselves to be an authority over the word, and the law of God. Jesus commands them to submit. Have you not read what therefore God? Jesus' position on Scripture is clearly apparent in the context here. Jesus is commanding them to change their view to submit to the word of God. Secondly, under this point there's of authority, Jesus points out the difference between what God commanded in the created order And therefore what God had joined together and the difference between that and the law of Moses. This is highlighted when he says, according to verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So this is a different kind of instruction that we find according to Jesus in Matthew, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 24. This was an allowance, a concession for a hardness of heart. Turn with me briefly to Deuteronomy 31. This is confirmed in Moses' own testimony. Moses' own testimony. This is very instructive. Verse, uh, Deuteronomy, again, 31, verses 24 through 29. It's the end of Moses' prophetic service. It's a time for him to be thinking about his legacy as he passes on from this life to be gathered with his fathers. He, knowing he won't enter the promised land, is nevertheless diligent to make every effort so that the next generation does not apostatize. But he does not have a lot of confidence in that regard. And this is clear in this text, verse 24. 
When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He says, verse 26, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord your God, that it may be there, of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. You see there, a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are, because even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the work of your hands. That provides for us a whole lot of insight, does it not? When we understand that Moses was writing legislation to account for a people that were stiff-necked and proud, obstinate and rebellious, forgetful and degenerate, and lost over and over again, disobedient to the Lord. Now we can see that Deuteronomy 24 is not a get-out-of-jail-free card when I don't want to be connected to my wife anymore, but instead these laws were a witness against the people who in their hardness of heart did not value, did not revere, did not respect the Lord who had made them from the beginning male and female, and had put them together. This, brothers and sisters, the bond of marriage is stronger than a blood bond, according to Scripture. Parents, many of you are newer parents like myself. New parents who are loving and in Christ have experienced that feeling of connection to your little daughter or your little son that is just about the most powerful emotional force that I can imagine in the universe. I've seen you, parents. I've seen you, dads, especially with your little gals. And we've had those joking, half-serious conversations, which probably are more serious than we sometimes take them to be, about the ammo stash and the weapons that we are going to collect, our arsenal, just so we can protect this precious, innocent child of ours. Fathers who love their daughters know that instinct of provision and protection and you will have to talk to the wrong end of my 45 before you presume to separate me from my daughter. I love those t-shirts. I saw a guy with, he was like a tricked out uh, AK-47 or AR-15 or something like that. And he's like, you want my daughter? You got to get through this. I mean, in a culture that's going to heck in a handbag, at least we got a few dads out there who are man enough to defend their daughters. Amen? Amen. But let me ask you this question. How many husbands out there are man enough to stick by their brides till death do them part? According to the Bible, there comes a time where parents leave their children. I better said, children leave their parents. There is a a substantial change in the relationship and they cleave to their spouse until death. There is a separation and a change in the nature of the relationship of parents to children. 
But there is a permanent bond in marriage that is not to be broken. And this relationship is meant to be the strongest of human relationships, superseding that even of that love and covenant bond that all of us loving parents feel for our children. This is the clarity that we have from the Word of God. Let us measure our hearts according to that standard. This command versus concession, we see these distinctions clear when we take into account Christ's words in the context of Scripture. Consider the broader application today. We've just taken a stab at it as far as marital faithfulness is concerned. But because in the context of our day, even the definition of marriage is supposedly up for review by magistrates and so on, consider a rephrased question asked of Christ and the relevance of Matthew 19. Consider the following. Someone might come up in the heart of a Pharisee to Christ himself in our day if he walked the earth 2,000 years after he appeared bodily in the flesh to men. Jesus came by St. Paul during a gay pride rally. He might be asked this question these days. Uh, Jesus, Rabbi, if two men desire a loving, committed, monogamous relationship, is it lawful for them to marry? And notice that question could receive this same answer, and it is absolutely authoritative, relevant, and seals the door against any alteration by man. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Master, remember? Uh, but two men, uh, two women, in a loving, committed, monogamous relationship, which is a bunch of balarney, uh, is it lawful for them to marry? Have you not read the Scripture's answer? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This would never happen in a million years. But if it ever did, I pray for the confidence to be obedient to Christ. Let's say on Tuesday this next week, Supreme Court begins to receive deliberations on the matter of marriage. Is there something like a constitutional right for it to be redefined? Let's say I was called as a witness, one who assumes the pulpit each Sunday morning here and presumes to declare the Word of God. What would I say? I need look no further than these words. Have you not read? Am I saying anything new? No. I am echoing the words of Christ. They are not up for review, for revision, for alteration, for redaction. They are not here to abrogate or to change. Not one jot, not one tittle. Supreme Court, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I hope I have done something to communicate the inalterable, the immutable authority of the Word of God when it comes to matters like this. I understand that there's probably nobody in this room who is considering seriously our cultural slide in these matters a good thing, but I am preaching strongly this morning because you will need to be strong on these issues. Because likely, given present trajectories, 
the course that we are headed, many of us will be pressured in one way or another to capitulate, to affirm, to back down, to compromise, to deny our sovereign Lord. Where can you find refuge when you are under pressure? Look no further, saint, than passages of Scripture like Matthew 19. Do not look to the conferences that are being held even these days. And I heard one this last week. Listen to some of what was presented. A Christian so-called ethicist who teaches and presides at a Christian so-called university meeting with a man, his name is Gushy is his last name. He's a doctor in something. And he was linking up with a man named Matthew Vines in the so-called gay Christian movement, making the case for the church, welcoming as a gift from God the aberrant, of course they wouldn't call it such, sexual proclivities of this generation. It's not something sinful, but something that represents a discriminated minority group like the blacks of the civil rights movement, or the Jews that were falsely accused under under different historical circumstances, calling us to abandon the word of God, not call for repentance, but capitulation. This is the society, the context that increasingly knocks on the door here as the urban sprawl of Sodom seems that it's reaching the front door of Christ's church. This morning, let us consider these things and let us consider them seriously. There are necessary distinctions that are the foundation for the understanding of marriage in Scripture. And we ought to be reinforced by these truths so we stand strong. Finally, this morning, and briefly, this section of Scripture closes with a cynical view from the Disciples and Jesus countering with commitment in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, it seems as if to say that the disciples were cynical of Christ's high standard. You're setting the bar unrealistically high given our culture of Christ. Who's going to listen to that? Understand there might be some nobility in it. And maybe there was a time in tradition or human history where that might have been the norm, but it's unrealistic to ask for such a thing these days. That really is the heart I hear in the Pharisees questioning Christ in this matter. Notice how he responds in verse 11. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. And he talks about those who are, by providence or by choice, separated from the covenant of marriage, Altogether, and he says in closing, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, they are such as they are. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And Christ here dictates the terms of biblical singleness. The call to biblical singleness, that is to live outside by choice or by providence of the covenant of marriage, does not mean that we are less covenantally bound. No, do you notice the language? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the single person as well as the married person has a life of covenant keeping and commitment that he is called to. That is to say, the picture of what marriage represents, the relationship between Almighty God and His church, between Christ our bridegroom and we the church, His bride, is a reality for every 
confessing believer. And we are bound to that covenant with unbreakable, with an unbreakable connection. And marriage is supposed to be a picture and a parable of that commitment. So when we are tempted to be cynical or to question Christ's words, remember no matter what station or stage of life we are in, whether or married, no matter our circumstances, there is a call of commitment to the kingdom of God that is required of us. This call of commitment not only excludes the attitudes that I intimated earlier in this message, attitudes that would redefine marriage or make up excuses for divorce, but also attitudes that sound like this. Hey, enjoy your single life while you can. This is the only time you get to, you know, get out, sow some wild oats, enjoy the less responsibility right now, travel the world. Have you ever heard this attitude? Hey, enjoy those early Years in these days, as technology affords, it's indefinite, of childless years. Hey, as soon as you have kids, that's the ball and chain. That's the anchor that keeps you home. Enjoy those early years. Travel. Do something for yourself. Enjoy life. We hear it in the, in commentary of the young versus the old. Once you get old, you know, you got responsibilities, lots on your shoulders. Enjoy it while you're young. Keep a comfortable distance from church relationships, people might say. The closer you get, the more demanding and vulnerable the nature of the relationship becomes. These are a few examples of attitudes that are excluded in Christ's words. Why? Because no matter where we are in life, as a single person, as a newlywed, as a younger person, an older person, no matter where we are in life, We have a covenant with our Lord that we are called to be committed to. No part of the Christian life is well described as serving self. We are called to die to self, crucify self. And what part of any of those attitudes sounds like death to the flesh and crucifixion to you? None of it, I submit. None of it. We are bound to Christ. What would you have me do, O Heavenly Father? The married person is no less bound to the Word of God than the single person is. We answer to our Lord and Savior for every waking moment and decision. Let us live with more faithfulness and more fear and more obedience enabled by the Holy Spirit's indwelling, the indwelling that comes through the gospel alone. Let's note in closing that there are two ways to demonstrate the timelessness of Jesus teaching God's law for marriage. In other words, God will not be mocked. And there are two ways that this will show itself to be true. Either we can reflect His Word as gospel salt and light pervades our thinking and our commitments, or we as a people, and God forbid as an individual, can provide exhibit A for judgment. We'll be judged for our infidelity if we do not submit and surrender to the gospel, or we will receive the grace and mercy of Christ if we confess our sin and place our hope in Jesus Christ. So in light of this truth, surrounded by a culture that is ripe for judgment, believers in this room, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, may we be willing outcasts in this culture's celebrated profanation till death do us part, remembering and proclaiming Christ will never leave or forsake His bride, and praying that God would give us 
faithfulness to him. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bind us to yourself, that you would remind us of the relationship we have with you. We see in the scriptures the need for these reminders. Your people were so prone to wander, and we are arrogant and blind if we confess that we are any stronger in and of ourselves. We need to be here with God's people regularly next week. Lord, when we take the communion elements, we need that. We need that because we need to be reminded of the covenant bond of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord that married us to Him as it were, that created that unbreakable relationship and union because of what You have decreed and sealed on Calvary, dear Jesus. Help us and remind us. I pray that the fruit of this message would also be a strength of character and confession that we might stand when your word is challenged in this day. And I also pray, Lord, during this dark hour, as we shine by your grace, by your Spirit's enabling, that many might be called to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May we be found faithful to these things when you call us home or upon your soon return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.